Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We are continuing a study through the Gospel of John, and we come this morning to probably one of the most familiar portions of this Gospel. So we need to pray that we'll give special attention to words that are so familiar that maybe we don't feel the weight of them any longer. John chapter 3, we'll begin looking at this passage this morning by looking at verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. On the front page of the Center Daily Times yesterday, there was a article about a special speaker they had at the Forest Park Middle School this past week, Rulon Gardner, if you know the sport of wrestling at all, was a uh, a gold medal winner from the 2000, actually he won a gold medal in 2004, a bronze medal in 2000, or 2000 he won the gold medal, 2004 he won the bronze medal. But he's probably mostly remembered and always be remembered for his win uh, wins in the 2000 uh, Olympics because he went up against in the finals he went up against probably the the greatest wrestler of all time by most accounts I, I'm not a wrestling fan but that's what they say and he was a huge underdog and he defeated him and so his name has gone down in the history of wrestling and so Rulon Gardner was here at this local middle school and he was speaking and he was giving an inspirational speech to the students and so I was kind of curious I read through the article to find out well, what did he have to say to the students And there were a few quotes in there, but really the the central quote that they had from his speech went something like this. You can be a success if you want something bad enough and you work towards it. And I thought, well, I don't find that all that inspirational, but it sounded very familiar to me because, you know, and I don't know if you pay attention to these things, But when they ask athletes or politicians or musicians or movie stars to give testimonials or inspirational speeches, and they do this often in many different settings, it sounds like they use the same script every time. And really, isn't that the central message? Follow your dreams. Work hard. Don't give up. You can do it. You can be great. And if that's the only message... And really, that is the mantra that our kids hear over and over again, both in the schools and in the media. 
And if that's the only message they're getting, then they're getting a very incomplete message. And we're setting them up for disappointment, I think, in a fallen world. For instance, since you think of professional athletes delivering these messages to kids, if your definition of success is to be a professional athlete, not necessarily a great professional athlete, just to be, to be able to call yourself a professional athlete, think about the odds. I mean, guess what percentage of high school athletes become professional athletes at any level, in any place? In basketball, it's 0.03%. 03 hundredths of a percent of high school athletes become professional athletes. That's one out of every 333 high school athletes. If you play football, your odds are a little greater. It's 0.08%. And if you're a baseball player, you really have some hope because it's 0.4%. Four-tenths of 1% chance that if you're a high school baseball player, you'll actually play professional baseball. Of course, the vast majority of you will be earning peanuts playing in single-A ball, but you might be able to call yourself a professional baseball player someday. Now, I don't say any of this to discourage any budding professional athletes out there. If that's your dream, go for it, but you better have a plan B. That is the message, that is the form of inspiration that we impart to our children over and over. And if you can do it, if you work hard enough and you want it bad enough, if that's the message, then we are not preparing kids for life in a fallen world. Now, don't get me wrong, a visionary spirit, a good work ethic, a can-do attitude, an entrepreneurial spirit, these are all good things within a biblical worldview and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But if we bring that good old American pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of a mentality into church or, the Lord forbid, into the very presence of God, then we are in big trouble. Last week, we looked at the end of John chapter 2, and we saw this remarkable statement that John, the Apostle John makes about Jesus there in those last few verses. He says, many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew, he himself knew what was in man. Now this is, these verses are talking about the fact that Jesus was beginning to let himself be known publicly, and he was beginning to develop a real following. He was performing signs, he was performing miracles, and people were beginning to flock to him, recognizing his authority. And recognizing his power. But what John is saying here is that even though he was beginning to be, quote unquote, popular in the eyes of the public, as the son of God, he had the supernatural ability to look into the hearts of those people who were seeking after him. And he knew by looking at their hearts that many, if not most of them, really didn't understand him or his mission. Later on, Jesus would tell a parable about a man who went out to sow seed in his field. And he talked about how some of the seed that he cast out fell on hard soil that had been hardened by people pounding it down, walking over it. Some of the seed fell on rocky soil that was filled with both dirt and rocks. Some of the seed fell on 
weedy soil that had thorns and thistles, and some of the seed fell on good soil, representing, and that good soil, of course, representing people's hearts that were prepared to receive it. In that parable, Jesus is saying that as the word of God is being shared, as it's being preached, as it's being taught, there's going to be people who don't respond at all, who reject it immediately. Those are the hardened hearts. But there are going to be people who respond temporarily, who are intrigued, who are interested, who follow after for a while, but then fall away. And that of the four types of soil that Jesus talked about, representing four different states of heart, three of the, or two, yeah, three of the four have some response to the Word of God, but only one of those three responses is genuine and that endures and that really produces roots and fruit to the glory of God. Well, here in chapter 3, and actually it's kind of interesting, if you understand what, G, what John is saying at the end of chapter 2, you understand why he shares some of the stories that we have in chapters 3 and 4 and beyond. Because he begins to talk about people that follow after Christ. And here in chapter 3, John introduces us to one of these seekers, a man named Nicodemus. And he doesn't tell us much about Nicodemus, but but there actually is a lot of information packed into one verse there in verse 1. It says that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees were one of the religious and political parties among the Jews that had its roots historically among the Hasidim. The Hasidim were the people that 200 years earlier had stood firm upon the word of God, had resisted the political and social and cultural pressure to compromise and to accept Greek culture as it spread through that part of the world. And they made a name for themselves and fought both spiritually and and, uh, uh, physically fought against the attempts of the Greeks to try to assume them into Greek culture and to try to get them to compromise their religion and their morals. They were called, the Hasidim means the, the pious ones. And they had been persecuted as they resisted first the Greek culture and influence and then later the Roman influence. Well, the Pharisees were the successors to the Hasidim. But over time, they, of course, became known for their zealous commitment to knowing the law of God and keeping the law of God. Of course, they were, as we know from the gospel accounts, were particularly interested in ones that dealt with ritual purity, cleansing and separation from the world, tithing and cleansing laws and those sorts of things. And as Jesus would point out, they tended to neglect the higher parts of the law, the more moral aspects of the law. But they were so zealous to keep the law of God that they even added their own laws to the law of God to try to keep from breaking the laws. In other words, they if the fence of God's law said, don't go past this line, they would actually draw a line here so that they wouldn't cross this line. They'd make their own law that would keep them from even getting close to breaking God's law. But... That, of course, leads to legalism and defining righteousness by outward forms, and we all know what Phariseeism became in the New Testament. Because of their devotion to the law, the Pharisees were considered experts in the law, and so many of them were teachers. 
And in verse 10, we didn't read that this morning, but in verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was a teacher among the Pharisees. That's probably why he came to Jesus by night. It wouldn't look good in the eyes of his peers for Nicodemus as a teacher among the Pharisees to be consulting with someone who is becoming known as an unauthorized rabbi who is stirring up some trouble. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, and not only was he a teacher among the Pharisees, but John tells us he was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was one of a handful of prominent Pharisees who actually had been made a part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was like our Senate, a governing body representing the people, but it was made up of 70 men, and these 70 men, among the priesthood and the Pharisees, these 70 men had both religious authority and civil authority, of course, under the Romans. The Romans had the final say on everything because they were under the Roman Empire. So we're talking about a man who obviously is prominent both in a religious sense and in a civil sense in Israel. A very important man. But what John tells us here is surprisingly he was a seeker. He was in the process of becoming a follower of Christ, possibly. And so he comes to him by night to ask some questions. In verse 2, he approaches Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. Why did he, you know, of course, later on we know some of the Pharisees would introduce their comments or questions to Jesus insincerely, but you get the sense from the text that Nicodemus really means it, that he is representing some among the leadership of the Jews that actually did believe that, at the very least, Jesus was a prophet. He had been sent by God because they were scholars of the Old Testament and they recognized what true signs were. And they saw that the kind of signs or miracles that Jesus was performing, that they were signs that he was sent by God. He is a legitimate prophet of God. And you get the sense that Nicodemus is possibly being persuaded that maybe he's not just a prophet. Maybe he is the promised Messiah. The one, the king that God had promised. The one of the line of David who would come to establish the kingdom on earth to deliver his people from all their enemies and to establish true peace or true shalom, the great hope of the Old Testament on earth. Of course, shalom, we translate that by the word peace, but it really meant much more than just an absence of conflict and suffering. The peace of shalom is really wholeness, wellness in every part of our life. It's You know, what really isn't what people really long for today. It's what people want. You want success. You want peace. You want purpose. You want loving relationships. You want security. You want wealth and prosperity. We're striving for shalom and we don't even know it. That's what there's there's this instinctual desire for what the kingdom of God offers. And that's what the Messiah was to bring. And Nicodemus knew this. He was a scholar of the Old Testament. He was waiting for the Messiah to bring shalom and to establish the kingdom on earth. And so he comes ready to ask questions, but notice he didn't ever get to ask his question, did he? Jesus answer him, answers him. Jesus cuts him off and answers him, but Nicodemus hadn't actually asked a question yet. But as we look at what answer Jesus gives to him, 
we see what Jesus, as it says back in the end of chapter 2, he could see, he knows what's in man. He could see the heart of Nicodemus. He knew what he really wanted to know. And you get the sense from Jesus' response that the, 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 heart, the question of Nicodemus' heart was much like the question of the rich young man that we know later from Matthew chapter 19. When that young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do? I've kept all the laws, the rich young man said. What do I still lack? You get the sense that that's where the heart of Nicodemus is as he approaches Christ here as a Pharisee, as a teacher, and as a ruler. How do I get into the kingdom of God? As we look at how Jesus responded to the question of his heart, we realize right away that Jesus is making probably one of the most important statements that he made during his ministry. We know that just by the manner in which he presents it. He begins by saying, truly, truly. The old King James says, verily, verily. When you see that at the, at the beginning of a statement that Jesus makes, he's saying, listen to this. Everything I say is important, but you better listen to this one. And not only do we know it because he introduces it by that formula of truly, truly, but he actually says the same thing twice. He says it in verse 3, and then he repeats it using slightly different words in verse 5. So if he says truly, truly before it, and he says it twice, you had better listen to what he has to say. This is really, really important. Basically, what Jesus is saying, you want to get into the kingdom of God? It's going to take a miracle for you to get into the kingdom of God. That's really what he's saying. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that word again, you must be born again. The word again literally probably should be translated from above. It's been a a question where we talk about translation in the adult Sunday school, and that's one of those questions translators wrestle with. Should it be, because the Greek word, again, in many cases, probably most cases, does mean from above, but it can also mean again, and you have to determine which of those meanings from the context. Well, if you look at the context here, notice that down in verse 12, to look ahead for a moment, Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So that's one of the major points that Jesus is making to Nicodemus. I have come to tell you things from above. I have come to tell you heavenly things, and you're thinking too much like an earthly person. And then over in verse 31, there's also a reference to the same chapter, chapter 3, verse 31. He talks about uh, the message of John the Baptist, and this is what John the Baptist was saying. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so really that's the emphasis of what John's trying to stress here is that Jesus is bringing truth to earth from heaven, from above. And so I think probably the best translation is you must be born from above. But really it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? Because The birth that he's talking about is a birth from above, which is a second birth. So it is still true that even if he says you must be born from above, he's saying you must be born again. You have been born once. You must be born a second time from above. It's a new type of life that enables you, as Jesus says, to see the kingdom. 
You can't see it without this second birth. Without this birth, you'll never find it. Of course, Nicodemus, like seems like everybody in the Gospel of John that, that Jesus talks to, he takes them too literally. He's thinking too much from an earthly, horizontal perspective. And he says, that's silly. How could a person go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? That's a, that's a crazy idea. What are you talking about? And so Jesus repeats his statement a second time in verse 5, but he adds a hint to what he means. He says, verse 5, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now that phrase, when he adds, you must be born of water and the Spirit, that has caused biblical interpreters and scholars and preachers like me headaches for for centuries. Why did he add that, being born of water and the Spirit? What does the water mean? Some think that the water refers actually to physical birth, and in the context that makes some sense, because he's talking about being born of the flesh and born of the Spirit. But if you really look at what Jesus is saying, born of the Spirit and born of the water and the Spirit mean the same thing, the way Jesus is using it. So they're synonyms, so to speak. And so that's probably, it's not probably referring to, by, of course, physical birth. You think of amniotic fluid, you think that it's a sign of physical birth. I don't think that's what Jesus means here. The other belief is that he's referring to Christian baptism, that as you're baptized and born of the Spirit, you enter into the kingdom of God. But again, he's talking to Nicodemus, who would have no concept of Christian baptism because Christian baptism has not been established yet. It's better to think, maybe, of the message of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist came with a baptism, which wasn't Christian baptism, but it was a baptism of repentance, which called upon the people for the need to be cleansed before the God. And the water of John's Baptism pointed to that need for cleansing. And I think if Nicodemus really knew the Old Testament scriptures, when Jesus said you must be born of the water and the spirit, I think his mind would have gone back to one of the most well-known and most meaningful prophecies of the coming of the Messiah and the effect of the coming of the Messiah in his kingdom, which is in Ezekiel 36. So I can take you back there for a minute. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Here's the promise of God. You've heard this before. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and and be careful to obey my laws. A powerful statement about what would happen as a result of the Messiah's ministry that God would take the stone hearts out of us and replace those stone-cold dead hearts with hearts of flesh. And notice that he puts that in the context of a cleansing that will happen. This being sprinkled with water and cleansed as he regenerates us. And that's the word we're going to focus on. Regenerates. He takes the stone heart away, gives us a heart that can love God, seek after God, and obey God. Paul, in describing the work of regeneration, also brings in this idea of cleansing and regeneration over in Titus chapter 3. Let me read you verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
And there again, you get washing and renewal being described as the work of regeneration. When our dead heart is taken away and we're giving a living heart that will seek after and seek to please God. And so Jesus here, when he talks about being born from above or being born again, he's talking about regeneration. That as we are born into this world physically, we are born into this world because of Adam's sin, because we are born guilty as sinners, we are born spiritually dead. We're deaf to the word of God. We're blind to the kingdom of God, to the truth of God. And we are have hearts that are hostile to God instead of seeking after God. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. It's the state that that uh, Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. A few verses later, Paul says that even the faith that saves us, we we are justified by faith, we're saved by faith alone, but in verse 8 of, of Ephesians 2, Paul says that even that faith is a gift from God. Why is it a gift? Because it's a result of his work of regeneration within us. He made us alive when we were dead in our sin. That's why later in chapter 6, Jesus would say to, to the Pharisees and to his disciples, he says, whoever believes in me has eternal life, but no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to Christ and truly believe in him and follow him unless the Father has given him the gift of regeneration.